in sports, when you're competing at a high level, you end up meeting barriers sometimes that will either one, force you to be better, or two, will make you buckle. It's the same way in life. Everyone prepares, but then when they hit, hit the, the barriers, sometimes they buckle and sometimes they push forward. It's like Mike Tyson always says, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Today, though, I'm bringing on a guest to the show who has experience in helping you break through those barriers, break through those thresholds so that you can excel. You don't want to miss this episode of the Game Time Guru. So what time is it? Game Time Boost! This is the Game Time Guru podcast, where I interview sports figures from all over the world to help deliver a panoramic view on sports. So whether you're a former athlete, one of the crazies, or simply a casual sports fan, this is the perfect show for you as we peel back the curtains and learn from our guests every single week. I'm your host, Shane Larson, and I'm helping you see sports through a different lens. What's going on, everybody? Welcome out to the Game Time Guru Podcast. Once again, I am your host, Shane Larson. Excited to be here for another interview. We're almost four years in the making here. Started the show back in 2017. We are almost fully four years in the making. Hit 88,000, sorry, 88 countries, 56,000 downloads so far. Um, and it's it, due in large part to all the people who have supported the show, all the guests who have been on the show, and the sponsor of the show, 208 Printing. Uh, Got to give a massive shout out. 208 Printing, take care, they take care of all of my merchandise. They take care of all the needs that I have for, for what I want to do to, to, to advertise my hats, shirts, whatever. So if you guys need stuff done for you as well, go to madeby208.com. Whether you're an entrepreneur, you, you run a business, if you're an athlete, whatever it is, you have a brand that you want to get out there, go to madeby208.com. 208 Printing will get you taken care of. But also want to remind everybody as we get started, make sure if you have not done so already, Go leave a review for the podcast and subscribe to the show. I'm on all platforms. I'm talking YouTube, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, obviously. Please go leave a review on Apple Podcasts, but subscribe to the show on whichever platform you like so you can hear the interviews that we bring to you every single week. Um, as the show continues to grow, we want to make sure that everybody can hear the stories of the guests. And today, just I, I just rolling right into it, we've got an amazing guest on the show. I mean, we're talking, he's an author. A retired executive, triathlon coach, ultra distance runner. He's a teacher at heart. I mean, it, the, 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 it won't do it justice. We got to hear from him, but like, I mean, I'm telling you, he's got a lot of titles here. His name is Jeff Gora. Jeff, thanks so much for joining the show. Hey, you're welcome. Yeah. I'm excited to have you here, man. So first things first, like you almost died, huh? What happened with that? Well, that's a great bridge. So how are you? Uh, so what happened to your mother when you were growing up? It's kind of one of those kind of questions. No. So when um, I sold my business and I started doing a lot of um, high adventure stuff, um, I would say pretty rapidly within the course of about six months, I had um, two near-death experiences. Um, one was um, happened while I was leading a, a trek. I was a subcontracted guide on the side of Mount Everest, and um, I got dengue hemorrhagic fever, just dengue fever, and um, I didn't know I got it. I thought I was experiencing some sort of a mountain sickness or equivalent event, but I lost the ability to you know, breathe reasonably, uh, had just nonstop itching and scratching. I couldn't sleep, fatigue, no hunger, no thirst. Um, I had to get a helicopter transport back to um, Kathmandu 
uh, had my blood tested at a local lab right there that didn't have either electricity or running water. Wow. And they came back with, a, oh, by the way, you have dengue fever and there's a 10% chance of uh, mortality on this. Um, would you like fries with that? Because, wow. <laughs> you know, in everything we hear about COVID having a 2%, 3%, this was 10. And I was in a country where the hospital I was in didn't have running water or electricity. So I made the executive decision to evacuate and I got a flight back to the United States, saw my general practitioner literally daily. And um, I was able to recover from that. Oddly enough, um, the time off was just wonderful for my body. It healed tremendously. And um, you hear stories of people who get dengue, uh, typically not in this part of the world, the other part of the world. It's, you know, pretty quick. They go on ventilators, uh, permanent damage to their lungs and what have you. I managed to escape literally all those permanent effects from dengue, which is pretty nice. Um, the other event I had um, last April, and this has been pretty well published and it's documented on the Internet. Tens of thousands of people have read about it and what have you. But I was descending off the Blue Ridge Parkway. And, uh, you know, one of the skills every cyclist has to learn um, to get good is what I like to call learning how to descend like a bat out of hell. Right. So, you know, you've got one square inch of rubber in contact with the front tire and one square inch of rubber in contact care of the back tire. So you don't get a lot of freedom to screw up. It's not like I'm a race car where I have four wheels or a motorcycle where I've got, you know, half a foot, square foot of contact with both my front and rear wheels. So if I had a piece of gravel, it's a bad day. Well, I went into a hairpin turn descending and I was going pretty quick and um, I couldn't make the corner. And um, I hit my rear brakes as hard as I could, but I kind of saw what was happening. So my front wheel hit the edge of this um, ancient bridge made back during the CCC days, I believe. But the the side of the bridge was made out of stone. It was like a foot tall. And my rear wheel just somersaulted over my back wheel. And I just you know did somersaults in the air until I landed at the bottom, which was a river uh, about 30 feet below me. And I hit on some bedrock right next to the actual flowing water itself. Um, fortunately, my bike did just like the people in training told me. Um, the front forks hit first and they shattered. And they absorbed all the impact and my front wheel went flying off into a Gaia land and um, my chest slammed into the handlebars. My legs, my hips were just perfectly intact. Oh, by the way, I broke seven ribs and got what's called a pneumothorax, meaning my right lung separated from my rib cage. So I really couldn't talk. Breathing was challenging at best. Um, I had about a minute before I was going to go into shock. I could tell that from being a Boy Scout. And uh, my left arm worked, uh, both my legs worked, and I knew from my days of teaching rock climbing that you really only need three appendages to safely rock climb. So I climbed out of there, climbed up the embankment 30 feet back to the edge of the road as fast as I could because I knew the area where I was in didn't have any cell coverage. And uh, most certainly you couldn't see me from the road. There was no way to, a car driving by would be able to locate where I was at. So I knew if I didn't get out of there, it was kind of a game set match. And I climbed up and I just laid down on the side of the road. And fortunately for me, a car came along. And the you know, guy who was in the car, I don't know his name, but um, he took ownership over uh, flagging down the next two cars to try to get some help for him. He sent one car up the mountain, another car down the mountain until one of them got cell coverage. And then they were going to call 911. And um, fortunately for me, there was an ambulance at the bottom of the valley who was just hanging out waiting his next call. So when 911 came, they were already on the road that I was on. So they zipped right up and picked me up, you know, 10 to 15. I don't know. I was in shock at that point, but 
Yeah, they put me in a stretcher and hauled me to hospital one. Hospital one, you know, tickled me under the chin and said, oh, this is so cute. You have too many broken bones for us to handle. So we're going to send you to the next hospital. Thank you very kindly. Good night. And they put me right back on the ambulance with a bunch of x-rays and a CT scan. And I went over to the trauma ward at the next hospital and spent the next four days in there um, in the trauma ward with um, all the substance abuse people. It was interesting to be in the trauma ward because although everybody in there had experienced trauma, I was one of the few who was mobile, meaning everything from my hip down were fine. So I could get up and walk around each day and, and see people and talk to the nurses and stuff like that. But because it was uh, April and everybody was scared to death that COVID was going to be the um, next Spanish flu or whatever. I couldn't have any visitors. It was just me and the nurses and the occasional doctor and the respiratory therapist for about four days there. So that real, between those two events, I very much got a chance to reevaluate ideas like what does adventure mean? What does safety mean? Um, what's life mean? Uh, how do I want to proceed? And I was only you know, early 50s when I retired. And during that, I was 54 when both of those events occurred. And so I felt like I got you know, 20, 30 years left. And uh, I'm kind of grateful in retrospect that both of them happened back to back because it really validated the need to uh, make sure I live life and not let life be lived for me and you know, let my freedom be my expressor as opposed to being the limitor in life. Totally, man. I'm like seriously in shock just listening to it. It's crazy because I, I took a couple notes here in my mind while you're talking. One, you're, the, the first thing is when you got sick in a different country, that alone has to be terrifying. Like you were mentioning, like the hospital itself, the care facility didn't even have running water. I mean, talk to me about what, did you have any fears there or did you kind of already understand that, that was kind of a, well, the good news was, is I was a Peace Corps volunteer in that country. Okay. So I could read and write and speak the language fluently. In fact, I've been tested for it by a department of state and, and I'm fluent in Nepali. So that side of it was non-evidential. I mean, I wasn't concerned that these guys were going to start injecting me with like red dye number five and send me off to chemotherapy because they didn't know what was going on. I wasn't concerned about that. But I also knew that, you know, I was on a you know, I was basically lying on an unclean surface because that was the best they could do. And the, you know, the mortality rate was inseparable from the fact that they really didn't have the conditions to help people out. I mean, their go-to was just, you know, lots of transfusions and IVs to try to get people through the time it takes for the dengue virus to, for me to develop antibodies for the dengue virus. And it wasn't, you know, very complicated for me to tell the doctor, you know what, I'm going to get on the next plane out of here and get back to uh, U.S. to get some health care in my home country. And he just kind of gave me the, he'd yeah. never been to the United States, but he fundamentally got that the resources I had over there were better than that. You know, the hardest part was figuring out a way to get um, from, you know, the other side of the world to the United States through the Middle East without all the people busting me for traveling with a deadly disease in other countries right. going through I found that interesting when you were talking like you were saying yeah. that i'm like how did that even work logistically do you do you mind sharing how you even got over here because i was thinking that so like, it's probably against the rules to let everybody know my sister right. was an md who'd had this disease before and okay. i spoke with her and she said you know make sure you do whatever you need to do to keep your fever down because they will potentially scan to see if you have a fever before you board those international flights so i got on a very intimate basis with tylenol <laughs> during the flight over there. So, you know, a half an hour before disembarking, an hour before I knew I was going to get on the plane, you know, I would go 
take, you know, two grams of, I don't know how much, two, I'm, a lot of Tylenol to make sure my fever was such that I was going to pass it when they put the little widget up to my head. And it did. It worked each time. I mean, it's not contagious. Dengue doesn't, you know, jump from human to human. It's spread by mosquitoes or something like that. And there's just not a lot of mosquitoes in Abu Dhabi or Qatar. You know, there wasn't Southeast Asia, but that's about it. So I had a, a plan to get home, but it did involve a wee bit of cheating. Hey, yeah. If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying, right? No, I'm just kidding. But that, yeah, you got to do what you got to do, and I think that's, that's yeah. I was, I, yeah. But I think it's, it's a little crazy. bit of the Bill Belichick in me there. Yeah, I, I, I love it, man. You got the coaching, you man. It's it's the analytics. You just you kind of understand the things yeah. that you got to do to get it done, you know. Mm -hmm. And obviously, it was involving your life, so that's a little bit different than just like a sport of football, right? It's involving your life, and I thought that's I thought it was awesome that you just shared that. Now, when you were talking about the crash. The mm -hmm. one thing you had mentioned is like you were a Boy Scout. You kind of understood the situation. You were still coherent. You hadn't gone into shock yet. Uh, you mm -hmm. knew how much time you kind of had left. So you went to work as fast as you possibly could. Shows your preparation there. Do you remember like the whole thing? It sounds like you do. I read the story on the, online on your on your website. And then I heard you say it right here. But so you remember the situation at hand when you landed and everything as far as like just click, click, click. Did all that preparation that you had prior through the Boy Scouts and everything just naturally come into your you know into the, into the yeah right there. this is kind of a military axiom but a police officer will tell you the same thing in a really stressful environment you kind of default to your training whatever your training is overrides your inability to correctly judge the situation right you know that's what the iterations of training do for you and i knew what shock was i knew the response to shock i knew i had a limited amount of time before you know blood flow to my appendages was slowed and my body started pouring all of its resources into you know inflaming the area that had been damaged to prevent further damage from occurring. I didn't know to what extent. I mean, we had my lung been punctured. I didn't know. I couldn't talk. It hurt too much. Um, so I knew I had a limited amount of time before I was going to lose, you know, function of my legs and my arms. And it was just kind of matter of fact. So I don't, I, I can't really say I thought about it, maybe a second, you know, that's about it. Just said, I know if I don't get out of here, I'm never getting out of here. So I kind of did. It was a moment of a Tom Hanks ish, you know, with my my trust, trusty friend Wilson having to respond to floating on my barge through the Pacific. I knew if I didn't go then, I was not going to be able to go. So uh, consequences be damned. So I just started climbing and I got out. And it really wasn't that challenging. I mean, I mean, yeah, it was steep, but it really wasn't. But, you know, six body lengths, five body lengths of climbing until I was out. Yeah, man, it's so I just. I'm trying to put myself in the situation as you were explaining it. I can visualize it all, but like the, the, the fear that it kind of brings to me, just, just thinking about it is just crazy. It shows how persistent you are. You, you got through it all. And I'm sure like you just said, it kind of probably gave you a new perspective on life at this point and like what you, you know, can bring and just mm -hmm. what life means to you and everything. You just kind of explained all that. Now I want to get into the discussion with you, Jeff, about like your, your coaching. I mean, you coach triathlon. I'm sorry. You're a triathlon coach. So you're training these athletes sure. and you're training them. And I'm sure I want to get into this discussion too, because as I've trained as, as an athlete myself, a former mm -hmm. boxer, former basketball player, and now I, I like to do long distance running. Now I'm not a professional at it. I just like to do it. It's pushing my body to new limits. I understand now though, even in all sports, you do meet, you, you have these barriers. You're, you're training triathlon. Mm -hmm triathletes essentially you're training these athletes to push their bodies to, to limits and you have some experiences mm -hmm. like this and you can pass on to the next person what is, what would you say are some of like the biggest barriers that these athletes that are training for triathlons 
run into mm -hmm. during their training process? Sure. So, um, you know, most people get overwhelmed by the concept of language. Like I speak many languages and you hear somebody speaking in French and you just don't even know where to start. It's crazy. So we learn how to compartmentalize things like in Nepali, for example, there's 38 letters in the alphabet instead of 26. Well, just hearing that, that too is overwhelming. But, you know, one letter at a time, you know, maybe two letters a day. Next thing you know, three weeks are up and you know all the letters. It's just incremental because we learn how to compartmentalize our learning. And, you know, with triathlon or with many of these other sports I do, but I'll stick with specifically triathlon. You know, you see, you know, the finish line at Ironman and you see these guys grunting and, you know, just pumping and yeah, dog after finishing a marathon and 2000 miles on the bike and a 42 kilometer swim or whatever the numbers are. Right. <laughs> and um, it's overwhelming to think that that's something I can do one day. I could possibly do that, even if it's a few hours longer. But truth be told, you know. You know, the swim section, it's basically you have to learn how to do your stroke perfectly. And you go into the water and you do about 10,000 times. And then voila, at the end of 10,000 strokes, you get out of the water and you run to your bicycle. You know, you know, left arm, right arm, repeat. Left arm, right arm, repeat. And you learn the differences in how to breathe and how to kick and all that goes with it. But it's very iterative. I would say if you're a basketball player, you fundamentally got that you had a certain number of dribbles per day or a certain number of free throws you needed to attempt per day to be consistent at the end of the game, right? You could right. tell when a guy cut the corner because in the fourth quarter when he got hacked and he had to shoot free throws, you know, yeah. you knew it. And it wasn't that he just sucked in the moment. You could tell that there was a pattern that was missing, right? right. You could tell that. You didn't need a coach to teach you that, <clears throat> right? Same thing kind of true with triathlon. Like you get on a – when you teach people, you know, in triathlon, you basically got five independent disciplines you have to work on. Swim, bike, run is the part that everybody gets. Um, nutrition is mission critical. And then recovery. Um, in general, when you coach an American, recovery is the most challenging. People get really scared when you say, oh, by the way, you have to take some time off. And you say, how much? How about a week? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> a week off? <laughs> you know, and this shows up throughout our culture. You know, a lot of cultures use Europe. You know, you get six weeks off a year and nobody thinks twice about it, including the employer here. You know, when I owned a company, I gave everybody three weeks off a year and I would bet you 50% of my employees never used all their time off. Yep. You know, it's just, it's a part of our culture right here that we struggle with. And it shows up, you know, if you look at the um, finish line at you know, the Ironman, the, the world championships and the higher one, even though America's got more citizens than any of the other countries that compete, you typically see, you know, more Europeans in that top 10 window than you see Americans, even though there's more of us than them. Just fundamentally, there's some understandings culturally that we haven't figured out yet as a culture. And then you got to teach them nutrition. You know, um, in the college football world, um, there was a team that was not very good. Um, the head coach brought over European soccer nutrition. And the next thing you know, that team, the Oregon Ducks, they're playing for the national championship. Coach will tell you, I did not have better athletes than everybody else. I had better fed athletes than everybody else. And so that makes a difference. So when I'm training people, you know, one of the conversations we have is, you know, how do you eat? You know, I hired a nutrition coach early on to teach me how to get the salts right and the carbs right and the protein and fat on race day. And then, you know, I ended up finding out that I had such a gap in what I knew about how to eat because all I knew is what my parents taught me. Not that they did anything wrong. They did the best they could. But, oh, by the way, it was really wrong, <laughs> you know. Right. So I ended up, my wife and I ended up, we teach a class called Faith, Food and Fitness where we kind of cover the basics of uh, what does nutrition look like in the Old and New Testament? How do you do that in the 21st century? How do you shop for that in the 21st century? You know, and how do you hold yourself accountable? How do you 
find a way to hold each other accountable. You know, it takes about two or three months to go through it. And plus or minus half the people that take the course come back and say, I didn't get it all. I need to take it again. And next thing you know, these people are now teaching their children and their children are teaching their friends. So it's kind of contagious. It's like um, dengue without the mosquitoes. <laughs> and it gets passed on. It gets passed on pretty effectively. I love so a lot that. of this stuff that I do, I'm finding I, I, I'm compelled to teach it and share it with others. And I don't charge for my class. Uh, it just doesn't seem right. But Where can they find more information on that that particular class? Well, if you just hit Threshold Academy, you can hit us on our Facebook page or um, you know, online thresholdacademy.com. There's a whole link to our faith, food, and fitness section. Uh, we've decided not to hold it uh, virtually. We tried a session, and we decided that the whole, you know, this this sort of experience, StreamYard, you know, Google Meets, Zoom, Shmoom, whatever the latest fashions are, it was inadequate to express all the body language and do all the storytelling. So, yeah, we're going to launch the next one um, once we have, uh, you know, the ability to meet face to face again. Totally. Totally understand that too, but like I'm gonna put the the descriptions here for the 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 pages and your website mm -hmm. here in the in the description so people can go and sure. check that out. Now you meant you touch base on nutrition. This is a huge piece for me and recovery. Like I love that you mentioned the five disciplines, not just the three. You know, like everyone mm -hmm. thinks the three. And one thing I always learned in boxing, while I wasn't always the best at my diet, I always learned that nutrition was key. And it, we all hear that, but as younger athletes, we kind of like don't care when you're in high school, you don't care about what you eat because your metabolism's so good or whatever. It's mm -hmm. as you get older, you start to realize, and it wasn't until I started boxing as well as running that I realized how my body needs the nutrition mm -hmm. and the kind of nutrition that you need. And I think it's crazy that people don't understand that. So people like yourself who are teaching that it's super important. Like in the middle of a, in a middle of a run, I, I usually work out fasted. I don't like to eat before I work out or else I get sick. But when you're doing long distance running, I can't do that. I at least have right. to have some calories in me because I realized by like mile eight, mile nine, if I don't have something in me, some sort of calories, I don't care what it is, then I'm locking mm -hmm. up. And that's just <laughs> how it is. And this, and so it's cool to see that you are focusing on those, those types of things. Now I want to hear from you, Jeff, as far as like the, the, uh, the triathlons and different, you know, competitions that you've taken part in as an athlete before you got sure. into the coaching thing. Do you have like a couple experiences that you might've had that you really like just are in your memory that you absolutely loved and you'll never forget? Yeah. So I would say I was a um, armchair athlete until somewhere in my forties in the sense that I was a runner okay. and I lifted weights but I certainly never had a goal. And I mean by a goal is I didn't have an event with a fixed start time on a fixed date that I was planning for. So I worked out, but the whole idea that there's 32 workouts before you compete, there's 16 workouts before you compete, you know, of that 16 workouts, two are going to be intensity based, three are going to be base based. You know, I mean, I didn't have this big grand picture. I just worked out because I knew if I didn't work out, then I would look bad, feel bad, fill in the blank. It was pretty, um, um, childish. I would say it was about as uh, insecure of a workout strategy as there exists. It's the most common strategy in the United States, but it was pretty, it's pretty childish. And um, I had an employee, gosh, Jeremy, you're on the phone, you're on this call again, second time. Um, he talked me into doing a duathlon at a local uh, facility, maybe half an hour, 45 minutes from my house. So I signed up for it and did like every natural human being does and stuck it in their calendar with a reminder of whatever I put in. And forgot about it. <laughs> so my wife and I are having a party at our house. There's probably 50 people here. And I'm in the kitchen. And my phone beeps. And it says, you have a duathlon in 12 hours. And I did the WTF that all good natural 
God-fearing Christian man would do and immediately turned to my wife and made up some sort of lie and um, went to the garage and tuned up my bicycle. You know, I had to oil the chain and pump up the tires and stick it in the back of the pickup truck and dust off my helmet because I hadn't ridden my bike in weeks and um, load everything up as best as I thought I needed. I didn't do any nutrition. That was a short, it was a sprint distance. So it's not the case I needed any. And I remember showing up with like two water bottles, you know, full. And this is in May. And oh, by the way, I was only going 12 miles. Okay. But I was low. You know, I had three pounds of water. What? <laughs> <laughs> so I did. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. Um, but I ran fast, and I biked very hard. And it was a very hilly course. Hills are good for me because I have a high threshold for pain. And um, at the end, I ended up getting second place in my age category from my first event ever. And I don't remember how many people were in the age category. I don't know ten. I don't know the number. But I got an email later saying, oh, by the way, you'd like to do the national championship. Here's the sign up form. And I thought, you know, I do need a goal. And I know what happens if I have a goal with a fixed time and date. It's like the SAT. It's, you know, it's like graduation in May of whatever year I graduated. It's, it means something when you have a time and date associated with your target. So I said, I'm doing this. So I signed up for the national championship and I was uh, able to look myself in the mirror and say, you don't know what you're doing. And I went to a local store and I asked the lady behind the counter, I said, I need somebody who's pretty good with people who don't know what they're doing. And they said, we know the person for you. <laughs> and so I got introduced to a, a very small but highly experienced woman named Sharon. And um, she was very comfortable working with people types like me. Um, you know, she's forgotten more than I know, as far as I'm concerned. She's been doing triathlon since I think Abe Lincoln was assassinated. It was the first one she did. And um, she held my hand through the process of getting ready, helping me with my workouts as, as best as she could. And um, I got injured going into the buildup for it. And I got a, um, I had um, um, an event in my right foot such that there was pain between um, some of the toes. It turned out to be like, I forgot the Morton's neuroma was what it was called. And I had to get cortisone shots. So I couldn't really run that hard. So I spent a lot of time focusing on the bike, you know, and all these endurance sports, you know, Aquathon, aqua bike, triathlon, duathlon. The longest portion of the race is always the bicycle portion, right? Right. Swim and the run are secondary and distance compared to that. So it wasn't that bad that I couldn't run as hard as I needed to because I was focusing on the bike. And um, I did well enough at the national championship to get a, a Team USA slot. And they said, congratulations, you can compete at the world championship in Spain. Well, I thought that was the bomb. You know, being a CEO of a high tech company, I went to a lot of my vendors and said, why don't you sponsor me? I'll put your logo on my uniform right near my name and my country. So I managed to get other people to pay for me to train for and compete in the world championship. And um, this is probably my best story so far on the, on the exercise side of the thing. My Morton's neuroma did not heal in my buildup for um, the world championship. I was getting um, shot, shots in my foot of steroid injections and stuff to try to get ready. And um, even two or three days before, you know, I couldn't really run two miles without pain. You know, I was like, I have to take Tylenol both before and after to get through the thing. Um, so I didn't show up at the world championship with a lot of expectations, but when the gun went off, I believe there was like 68 people total in my segment of the race. And about one minute in, um, I was in last place. And you know how I knew that? I turned around and looked back and the only people there were the videographer on a motorcycle and the ref who was looking for people who were cheating. 
on a motorcycle. And that was it. I had everybody else was in front of me. And I mean, everybody else. And um, that's when I kind of said, um, what do I do? Like the temptation in that moment when you know you suck and you have evidence that you suck is to stop trying. Right. And that thought was right there. I mean, it was right on my forehead, tip of my tongue, whatever you want to say. And um, I had a uh, down to earth moment. And I said, I don't need to be last. I'm not the worst guy here. I'm sure of it. So I started the process that I, and I teach my athletes this, about reeling people in. So I remember the, the guy who was in 67th place was a guy named Hernandez. And the only reason I know that is we all have to have our name and nationality on our butts. Okay. So people behind you can see you. So it has your name and your nationality. And his said ESP for Spain, España. And so I just reeled in Hernandez. I went, you know, at my threshold, if not a little bit more, and got in front of him enough to slow down and just leveled off at another pace. And then I went after another guy. He was an Italian. I went after an Italian and I got him. Then there was an Mexican and I reeled him in. Then a Japanese person. And I just kept passing people repeatedly until I got um, near the end of the race. And um, I was behind the champion of South Africa. And he and I were entering the stadium with maybe 400 meters left before we hit the finish line. And I said, come hell or high water, I'm going to finish ahead of this guy, regardless of whatever. And I remember um, drafting him. I didn't even know that drafting existed and running until I was like half a meter behind him for a minute. And I realized that this really does work. I was finding that I was putting out less effort to maintain that pace than I otherwise would. And when we hit the final turn, you know, I don't know if you saw the movie Spinal Tap or not, but there's a scene in there where the, the band guy turns the knob on his guitar, his, his guitar's amplifier up to 11. He just got a knob that went from, instead of going from 1 to 10, it went from 1 to 11. Same thing. But, and I remember thinking to myself, I am turning my knob to 11. <laughs> And I turned it to 11 and I lit up and I ended up beating this guy by a couple of seconds, few digit number of seconds. And when I crossed the finish line, I was so used to the, um, the spirit of competition, the spirit of um, pairing that my gut was just, I faulted to my training was to turn around and say, good job. Well, he swore at me. F and yank is what he called me. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh, this is a real competition. I guess that's why they call it the world championships. And I was hooked. That was it. It's like, I want to keep doing these things, man. This is great. This is just fantastic. That is. <laughs> and so I've awesome. done like, uh, I've done like 10 of world. I've done like 10 world championships and a couple of different um, disciplines now, a couple of different distances specifically with duathlon. Cause that's the sport I'm best at. I'm not a good swimmer, but on the bike, I'm pretty good. And on the run, I'm pretty good. So that that's good enough for me. What an awesome story though, man. Like I'm sitting here just, it sounds like a movie for real. Like it, it, right? it itself. you talked about the mentality, Jeff, of like, you wanted to quit. You're kind of like, ah, that happens a lot to a lot of people, whether it be business, whether it be athletics, whatever, whatever it is, they, they train, they work so hard. Then all of a sudden they get punched in the face. Like Mike Tyson always said, everybody's got a plan to get punched in the face. That's right. You know, mm -hmm. Fair. My question is this. I mean, obviously that's your skill set. You're coaching people to get through these thresholds, these, these barriers. What are some of the tips without giving away the, the, the house essentially, but what are some of the tips when you, you hit that level of like, and it's at a high level, like you're in a big time setting world championships. You really, it's a real, real thing. You want to quit. What are like some so, of the tips and tricks you use to get through that? Let me, uh, let me tell, so instead of me going on to this uh, hypothetical stage, let me just jump to you saying, so um, what's your, um, talk me, talk, you tell me what, why did you pick a marathon? Basketball and boxing, they they marathon's got three syllables. Those two have two. Other than that, I don't know what the heck they have in common. Why'd you pick that? <laughs> I picked a marathon. I'll tell you why, Jeff. Because back in February, March is when I decided I, I needed to get back in shape. So I started running. And I hate running because it, it 
it's not comfortable for me at 6'2", 260. Mm -hmm. I wasn't doing good. So I needed to lose weight. So I did it. I'm 6'2", 220 now. And I, I finally finished a half marathon. And that pushed me to my absolute limits. And I was mm -hmm. like, I'll never be able to do a half marathon. Well, I did it. And as soon as I completed that in September, I was like, I'm doing a marathon in 2021. Like I needed to see if I can push myself to my next limit. So my my goal with running mm -hmm. is pushing myself through through limits. Like I said, my body has never been tested the way it has even in boxing or basketball, never have I seen my body have to like my nutrition during training, after training, all the things that you mentioned, I've never been tested to that limit until I started mm -hmm. doing long distance running. So I said, okay, let me try to push myself to the next step, which would be a marathon for me. So that's kind of why I'm doing it. All right. Sounds so what was crazy. the hardest point in that 13.1 mile run itself? The hardest point mm -hmm. I would actually say is getting to the 10 mile mark because prior to that 13 mile mark, I hadn't ever actually done more than 10 miles. So once I got to that 10 mile mark and I knew I had a 5k left. Um, right, so tell me out, speak out loud to the sentences that were in your mind at 10 miles. Right when I hit the 10 mile mark, I said, okay, I have a 5k left. Take a sip of water. I've got a 5k left. And that's then I positive. What about the negative thoughts? What were they? <laughs> uh, hopefully my, my calf doesn't cramp. I'm hoping my calf doesn't cramp. Take some water so your calf doesn't cramp because I know if I start to cramp, I'll I'm done. So what stop. did you have any? If my calf cramps, then I'm gonna I didn't because I was hoping yeah, that I did. wouldn't cramp. I well maybe I mean, you crushed it, but what was it? What did you think you were gonna do? Suck it up? I was Quit. planning on I kept telling myself keep moving. So if I cramp, just keep moving. Okay, good. So one of the ultimate things we have to do is have a contingency plan. Okay. Because every race has an A, B, and C effect, right? You know, the CA effect is the highest of expectations. Win the marathon. C might be, you know, have dinner after the marathon. Now, you, there's no commitment to going 26.2, but that might be your C effect, meaning I didn't end up in the hospital, right? So, and your B effect. And each of those go, each of those has a different series of um, steps that you have to go through, right? If you want to, okay. you know, want to buy a house, there's the sequence, pick a house out, find a way to pay for the house, make an offer on the house. We can go through those whole things. And that same methodology applies when you're doing an event. So if you're doing 26.2 and you say, okay, what did I learn from 13.1? There's magic at 10.0 that's both positive and negative. 100% chance you're going to have that same effect at 13.3 or whatever. So you have to come up with strategies that you're going to use to make it so when those things do happen, you can survive them without um, collapsing. Like um, the hardest race I ever did, um, I would say was my first time I did Powerman Zofing. It's the world championship in long distance duathlon. So it's a 10K run and a very hilly course. And then it's a 150K bike ride through central Switzerland. And each of those is three loops of 50 kilometers. And each loop had four climbs, two of which were quite real. Meaning when you get to the top of that, you know, you're looking for a massage, uh, your wife, maybe your mother, um, some more milk and cookies. I mean, you're just whooped because some of these are really long. And then when you finish that 150K bike ride, then you do a 30K run and it's on all terrain. So you have some on paved, some on stone, some on rock, some on dirt. Um, and it's crazy hilly, like um, multiple sections where people walk like everybody walks. I remember watching a video afterwards and seeing the um, woman who won the world championship. She walked one specific hill that we have to do. She walked it twice and she still ended up coming in first place overall for all the women. So a plan that includes what do you do if a fail occurs um, is pretty mission critical to it because you kind of own how you respond to surprises. Um, but if you don't have a plan for a surprise, 
That's a bad day, man. You're not you're now resorting back to what? Well, I don't know what you're going to resort to. So I try to hold people's hands on coming up with a plan for surprises. So in your case, you know, if my concern is cramping, if my concern is this stupid calf, and maybe you don't use the word stupid and you replace that with some piece of profanity. Well, what can you do to make sure Mr. Calf or Miss Calf, whatever you call it, doesn't show up on race day going, you know, you got to get your salts right. You got to make sure your hydration is right. You need to make sure that your salts are right before you have a problem as opposed to when you have a problem. But then you also have to have a plan in case you do have a problem. Like if it is caffeine, I mean, if it is a calf cramp that's coming along, you know, learn how to do a self calf massage in the middle of the race, figure out how to put your foot up on a sidewalk and learn how to stretch your calf and, and time it in practice. So you know that when I have to stop and stretch my calf, it really does take 45 seconds because the temptation is to be an American and try to speed it up and try to do it in eight seconds. I'm going to stretch my whole calf that I know takes 45 seconds. I'm going to do it in eight seconds because this is my daggum marathon. Right. So right. those are the strategies that I would suggest if you were an athlete that I would coach to get through that kind of thing. Oh man, super helpful. That is super helpful. I love that, man. And I'm actually probably going to take this in as I continue to train for my marathon coming up in 2021. I'm waiting. Which one did you pick? So here's the deal. Originally, we were supposed to have one in October in Boise. They got it that closed. So then that's when I said, okay, I'm going to push it, which is probably smart for me because I had never ran that far and I was going to push my limits and try to get hmm. 26 miles. So I, I, I'm waiting to see. There's one in St. George, Utah that I could potentially do mm -hmm. in 2021. Um, but if they close those down, that's where I'm worried. So I'm trying to just continue my training so that I can just find one in my region. I'm in Idaho. So they have a lot of different events in our region. Like you even mentioned, like Arizona's got stuff that happens. St. George, Utah themselves have it. And then Boise has their own stuff too. A couple of races that they'll do. But um, I'm hoping- For somebody like you as a first marathon, I would suggest you take a look at Mount Henderson in Nevada. You okay. can start very early in the morning on the top of Mount Henderson. And you basically run into Las Vegas. And for the most part, the race is very much downhill. So instead of being the traditional flat surface, which is you know, quite taxing on the body, you have a downhill run, which means you're necessarily going to go a little bit faster. But because it's a desert and there's tons of aid stations, the temptation to hydrate at every aid station is good because it's going to be dry. I know, I know Boise's, you're very dry to begin with, but Vegas is a wee bit drier in case you okay. know that. And it's going to be much easier for you to achieve your goal, whatever that may be, whether it's a time goal, um, finishing it, whatever they may be, because you show up in downtown Vegas at breakfast time. Okay. Because it's like from 4.30 till 8.30 or 4.30 to 7.45, whatever, how long you think it's going to take. Because it starts very early in the morning in the, in the, I think it's like April or something like that. It's a great one. And I, I don't know if, I don't know to what extent, when I work with an athlete, having a event on the calendar is really good. Having a second event on the calendar is even better. So if you have even the slightest hope, you know, one day, Shane should run Boston Marathon. Like if that's anywhere's on your docket, even though it's crazy like that, probably ought to run Mount Henderson because they have more Boston qualifiers at that run than probably any other run in the United States. Really? Okay. See? Mm -hmm. It's easy. And it's seven. You're going to start and go down 7,000 feet over the course of 26.2 miles. Okay. I can imagine that'd be kind of hard on the knees after a while, but I mean, it, nothing's going to be easy on the body. You can train for that though. You can train okay. for that both in the gym and in running conserve, running conditions. You can train for that. Perfect. What's your biggest tip on recovery from somebody who goes through a, a major event, whether it be a triathlon or a, or a marathon, like so recovery? What's your this biggest is, this is the easy. The secret sauce to recovery starts with the letter S and ends with Lee. Okay. 
Okay. You know, I went to a um, endurance coaching summit in uh, Boulder and there was one presentation there by a lady and all she did for her PhD was study all the different devices on the market to stimulate recovery. Like there's sleeves and vibrators and different kinds of salves and lotions and, um, you know, hyperbaric chambers. I can go on and on with the different things on the list. But when she did her uh, homework, um, looking at people who used it versus people who didn't, and compared that to other strategies for recovery that are already out there, namely, you know, good nutrition and stuff like that. She concluded that the fastest way to return the body back to a homeostatic state, get back to where you were before you work out, uh, second to none was sleep. Um, I'm going to give this example. Le LeBron, if you're listening, this is kind of for you here. He's like king of sleep. He knows right. how to lay down and stay in that position, especially during the playoffs, because he knows that in the fourth quarter is when the game is decided in a lot of those NBA games. And despite his age in the fourth quarter, he's one of the most rested players out there, even if he's been playing the whole time, because he's figured out that horizontal is the position of a winner. I dig it, man. And I've actually studied on LeBron. I'm a huge fan of LeBron James and how he takes care of his body. So I have actually studied how he does it. He you ought to tag him and make him listen to this. thing. I, hopefully we will, man. I'll tag him in the, in, in the podcast too. Yes, for sure. Hopefully he'll, uh, be hitting you up for for some advice as well because this is rad he does he like well, when he quits basketball he'd be an ideal triathlon candidate i would love to do like heinz ward switch to triathlon out of the football world i could see lebron entering the uh, triathlon space and it'd be great for him and great for the triathlon community oh for sure lebron's just a monster but like in regards to sleep i remember him talking about he black he does a blackout with his curtains when he's in the hotel rooms he does take a nap on game days for a certain amount of time but he's very like precise about it and then he has this he has to have the room at like, I think 68 degrees when he's sleeping because of the, the way that it helps you get into your REM cycle of sleep. He understands he has to be to bed by this time, get X amount of hours of sleep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, There's he a science to sleep that shows up on game day. That's so true, man. And Kobe Bryant had his own version too. He had uh studied, he did it in like four hour segments though. He did like the four hour in the morning and four hour at night. He did a, a segment of sleep, but it's, it's, it is, it's true. It's a science to it. So I'm glad you shared that with us. Now, Jeff, like at threshold Academy, I mean, obviously you've got knowledge. You've been, we've been dropping knowledge bombs this whole time. You've got experience for one, then two, you got knowledge, but at threshold Academy, like you're here helping people, right? What's one of your favorite stories um, of somebody that you have personally coached getting through their thresholds and, and crushing it? Someone you've, you've taught, is there a specific story that kind of stands out to you? I'm sure you have many, but is there any? Yeah. Like, so this, well, I'll give you one from, this was from last year. There was one specific woman. She had gone through um, a lot of just, challenging to say the least marriages. And she had one husband who ended up, um, you know, becoming a, a drug addict for lack of a better phrase. And she was always in this um, reactionary responding mode to kind of the men in her life. And she had kids and she was a school teacher. And she decided um, after taking my faith, food and fitness class, that it was time to do something for her. So she targeted doing a half Ironman. Now, a lot of people think, well, it's only a half. Well, a half is still a 1.2 mile swim, a 56 mile bike ride, and then a half marathon. She was um, mid fifties. She was a school teacher. Um, she's overweight and she was keenly aware of all those things, but she was adamant that this is what she was gonna do. And in the midst of all of that, she ended up having um, health issues with both of her parents. So in addition to trying to address her own health to try to prepare for the event, she was taking care of her mom and her dad. And um, she defined persistence on race day, um, she was anxious. She didn't know if she was going to be able to achieve her goals, but she literally did the best she could and never gave up. And I remember seeing her um, maybe a minute and a half from the finish line. 
and she was already crying. She could already see that she was going to achieve her goal. She had already visualized the entire event. She had visualized the swim. She had visualized the bike. She had visualized the run. And when she was coming in to the finisher shoot, um, I think everybody in our group was crying with her and for her because we saw that her achievement was great. At that same race, my son got silver. And I would say it was probably a bigger event watching her just finish than it was seeing my kid get second because I knew the investment that both of them made and it was very real. But she had way more adversity than my 18 year old son, way more adversity. And you could see when she hit the finish line, what it meant to her. And of course that mean it meant a lot to me. You know, when I train somebody and it doesn't mean a lot to the person I'm training, um, that's not good for either of us. Right. Because that, that impacts me, you know, it's a big deal. You've seen the post Super Bowl hugs where I love you coach. I love you, man. Those kinds of yeah. things. If that doesn't happen, neither of those players generally don't repeat that event. You know, they don't care that the cameras are on. That's a necessary part of it. Like, I don't know who is coaching you for your marathon, but by God, you better love them. I feel you, man. And, I, and I'm glad you just said that because uh, I've got people giving me advice on it. I do. I like, I have a massive load of respect for them, but I need to get to I mean, that it needs point. to be, it, it's got to be yeah. intimate. If you listen, I was listening to a podcast between um, the Olympic gold medalist in triathlon, uh, Gwen, and her coach. And you could see that the two of them not only had respect for one another, but it was just an, it was a very real love. I mean, it was total bottom line. Either one of them could royally screw up and even go so far as to hurt the other person and they would still love each other. And obviously she took gold and she took it pretty handily in a crazy competitive event. I mean, she is chilly. She's the first to tell you she is not a triathlete. She just happened to be the best in the world. You know, the coincidence with that. She's a great runner and she's long since ditched triathlon and is now trying to become an Olympic marathoner because that's her lead card. But she had that relationship with a coach who knew how to get in and turn the gears and turn the knobs and knew when to not turn the gears and not turn the knobs because they knew each other so well. And she got the gold medal for it. That's so cool. I hope all the athletes and coaches that are listening to this, parents as well, <laughs> take some notes, just like I'm taking notes from you, Jeff, because that's, that's super important to know. I see a lot of that now that you bring that up. I mean, there's fighters that I know that they have a good connection with their trainer and the ones that don't have good connections with their trainers, there's a, there's a difference. There's a difference in respect and there's a difference in their performance as well. That's a really cool story too, about, about the athlete that you trained. I think that's super cool. I'm sure you have tons of them too. Um, and you'll probably have way more coming in, in the future as well. Before we sign off, I want to know, you, you mentioned you speak a lot of different languages. You've had, you've traveled mm -hmm. around the world. I mean, that's something that's unique because not everybody gets the opportunity to do so, but in regards to sports where sports have taken you, mm -hmm. what would be the best country that you've gone to what's like your favorite experience outside of the united oh, states oh gosh so I, I ran an ultra marathon in the himalaya in nepal a few years ago and that was okay. pretty epic um i've raced and competed in a couple of countries in europe um competed in western canada okay. and then you think well that's just across the board and that was really i'd never been to british columbia specifically the inland side of british columbia and seen the all the vineyards and the mountains and the beautiful lakes and all that went with it it was it was epic it was spectacular Wow. I didn't know anything about that. That's awesome. Sports can take you in many places, man. And, and, and what I always tell people, Jeff, as well, I just want to make sure everyone understands this. The point of my show when I started it was to show people that athletes are not just dumb jocks. Okay. It's a parent speaking to you 
that that is, it is. like it you're is. not a dumb jock. Like that's yeah, so with Threshold Academy, one of my to do's with that was my first business was my son, my oldest son. I gave him partial ownership because I wanted him to learn business acumen. And now he's, you know, the human resources manager for the Carolina Panthers. And that skill has served him really well. And, you know, he has interactions with the same kind of people that he had with when he was in college, when he played college football at Liberty. And it's just a perfect environment for him. So my youngest son is a partial owner in Threshold Academy. And he and I organize and do cycling tours together. So we take people who want to just go above their threshold. We don't care what level you're at. And we take you and we do an epic bike ride. In 2021, we've got two bike rides we're doing on the Blue Ridge Parkway, right? I know a lot of people are scared of COVID. So I thought, let's do some epic cycling on a place that people who are U.S. citizens can drive to. So we start in the northern end of it in Rockfish Gap. And we go 469 miles over the course of about seven days or eight days, all the way down to Cherokee, North Carolina, staying in inns and resorts and eating food and We've got a strategy. So if one day you can't go or you can't do the whole distance, we have a we have SAG vehicles to pick you up. We got spare parts, the whole thing. It's great for my son because any money that we make on that, he can use to pay for room and board in college because he's got free tuition. And um, he also gets a chance to uh, lead people he doesn't know because he's 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 a world class cyclist himself. He can he, he's, he's great. So he and I take turns leading the group. One of us drives a vehicle. The other one leads the ride. And we price it so anybody can go. So that's all part of Threshold Academy as well, in addition to the coaching stuff. That is so awesome. I'm going to encourage everybody to check that out as well. That is super cool. It's cool that you got the connection with your kids too. They're all in it. You get, you've taught them so many awesome things and they're mm -hmm. doing awesome things. Jeff, this is super awesome. So thank you so much for like, taking the time today and just sharing your insight with us. Is there any last words you'd like to share in regards to your business or anything like that? Any invitations to the listeners out there uh, before mm -hmm. we cut off? I'd like to um, add a faith-based thing to this because it's kind of important. We all have a why that's bigger than us, right? So in um, Romans 12:1 in the New Testament, God tells us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, not our minds, not our work. He says, offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. By doing this, it is true and proper worship, meaning God is asking us not to give him very much. Like everything in the Old Testament if there was a sacrifice concept, if you killed an animal and the, in the rest in the New Testament, Jesus was our sacrifice. So one of the very few things God really gets in our face and says, this is what I expect you to give. It's your body as a sacrifice. And for most of us, we don't know how to do that. And we need a coach and we need somebody to hold our hands and how to sacrifice our bodies. And because there's a lot of really cool things that come from being fit other than just looking good and feeling good and being able to do things that you that your peers can't do anymore. It's amazing how few people I know can jump up on a 24 inch box who are in their fifties. You know, I'm the guy now who's got to change the light bulbs or, or change the spare tires on cars. Cause a lot of the people who are in my age group, you know, they kind of lost a lot of that skill set. And I love the fact that I'm, I'm fit and people want to know why it's kind of easy. It's just because God said so. And Oh, by the way, it makes sense because it feels really good when you do what he says. I dig it, man. Thank you for sharing that. That is so awesome. Again, ladies and gentlemen, it's been Jeff Gora. He's a stud. Go check out Threshold Academy. Go check them out. Follow all their social pages. I'll put them here in the description. And Jeff, once again, just want to say thank you for joining the Game Time Guru podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. For all the listeners out there, make sure you're subscribed to the show. We'll be coming to you next week with another interview. Take care. Guys, thanks so much for listening to another episode of my show. Now, if you could go and do me a favor, head over to iTunes, give me five stars and leave me a review. It would be greatly appreciated. Thanks, guys. Appreciate your support.